This is another episode of the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. And today, the centerpiece of the show is an interview we did with Earthboy. He runs the Elephant Tracks label. He's an Australian musician with decades of a career behind him and also someone with a long, strong relationship with cricket. So we were just going to do a couple of minutes off the top of the show just to quickly intro it and then go to that. But some other things have happened in the meantime that have to be addressed. And we also had to take advantage of the fact that Adam is here in Melbourne with me despite having apparently gone back to London a couple of weeks ago. He's now in Australia for about 48 hours. He's been awake for about 48 hours and I thought what better opportunity to get him on a microphone and put down some words for posterity than in his current state. Jeff, I, I landed yesterday in Vietnam for a brief layover to 50 plus notifications about Glenn Maxwell's match winning 100 in uh, it was at the, the Chinnaswamy in Bangalore. The, First game was great Vizek, cricket ground. Steve Vizek. <laughs> and, and, and my phone just, I mean, it's, I always have a degree of anxiety when I jump on a long haul flight and I land and I think what might be on my phone, like if I stuff something up work wise, I'm going to be, you know, pounded with emails or missed calls or whatever. But when you see, like, I think it was 27 notifications on WhatsApp and equally. That, that many and more on, on Twitter and the vast bulk of them <laughs> wanting to talk about Glenn Maxwell. I'm like, this is a good day. Good morning, <laughs> Vietnam. Uh, and that's pretty much what I've spent the last day or so talking about in my half-awake state. I went and caught the highlights last night, which were just a, a work of art from the reverse sweep six to a couple of those inside out over cover to Matthew Hayden at one stage going, Mamma Mia, on the commentary. Um, there's a few more, more questions than answers about um, Matthew Hayden's commentary so far on this series. I saw he was getting around in a video wearing a baseball mitt as a hat. He's been okay. working with Justin Langer, Good. training the lads. Uh, okay. But, but the, yeah, the standout image for me was... Was was Hayden um, getting around with yeah with, with a baseball mitt on his head? But anyway, Ma- Maxwell, Glenn, Glenn, Glenn we're talking you. about Glenn Maxwell. Uh, after we um, devoted an entire live show to building the case and explaining the story behind his consistent omissions and and so forth and trials and tribulations, it was wonderful that he's been able to become just the third player in the history T Twenty Internationals to make a third century in that form of the game. Probably a bunch of other stats that you're across, Jeff, that I'm not, but... He's the only player to make 200s in successful run chases in T20s. No one's ever done that more than once. I like uh, that. In, until now. And, yeah, in, in terms of who's made the most hundreds in the format, Rohit Sharma's done it four times because, of, of course, he has <laughs> Colin Munro, Glenn Maxwell, three, that's it. Um, they're the only ones at that level. So, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a sparse format, so it's hard to get the opportunities to do it and then to take those opportunities is something else. One of the things that... that that, uh, that was born out of the conversations that were being had about Glenn yesterday is that we're going to, for the first time on the final word after nearly five years, we're going to start some merchandise. We've done the live show and it's the natural... We hadn't, I can't believe we hadn't thought about this, but someone suggested to us that this is the right time to release a T-shirt. So we've been in touch with Anthony Costa at League Tees and that's precisely what we're going to do. And <laughs> where this came from, and those who follow Jeff and I on Twitter, especially me, I suppose, in this case, for who have that sort of West Wing, Glenn Maxwell crossover in the Venn diagram, <laughs> remarkably big segment of the Twitter community. The old Bartlett for America napkin, um, which I 
turned into a Maxwell for Australia version in about 2015. Microsoft Paint, I'm Microsoft sure. Paint, yeah. I, remember we were in, I don't know what it was. It was when Kawaja tore his hamstring in Perth and it was like about four guys vying for the spot uh, for the test down in Hobart and we were obviously pushing the case for Maxwell. But Jared Whateley opened his show uh, yesterday talking about that very napkin and, and the Maxwell for Australia movement. If you're a West Wing fan, you'll recall that there was a, a serviette. It was the nub of an idea, an idea that was too powerful to resist. It was handwritten and it read Bartlett for America. A few years back in Australian cricket circles, and it was a little bit of silliness at the time, there was a Maxwell for Australia equivalent. And now it's a rallying cry. Uh, it's more than just, you know, a few of us on talking about Maxwell Ball on Twitter these days that it's got, I think that will become our first piece of merchandise, a really terribly put-together piece of Microsoft Paint, Maxwell for Australia. So keep an eye out because I, I can see that coming down the pipeline soon. But what uh, an extraordinary day. And, and interesting that, you know, then immediately people were saying, well, what's the go with this batting at seven in the one-day team sort of caper when uh, probably about five of the six batsmen above him aren't necessarily making a very convincing case for themselves at the moment. I did see the 50-odd in 30-odd balls at Vizac in the, uh, at Steve Izard Stadium in the first uh, T20. And Your tax dollars at work. <laughs> that's right. And, and the... <laughs> that's right. I don't know where to go with that. Whatever I say will get me in trouble. I'm just going to completely leave it alone. Uh, but what I did, the bulk of the damage that he did was when Australia were... I don't know, 10 for two in the power play. When the field was up, he was able to go uh, through the field and over the top. And that's exactly what he did when he made his 100 in Sri Lanka a couple of years ago when, when he opened the batting in at T20 when he made 145. He, he seems to be liberated when the field are up. Now, a lot of players talk about wanting to bat in the power play, but he, he, he rarely lets you down there. So I, I would have thought that after seeing a performance like that, given how poor Australia have been in the 50-over power play of late, that would be a logical thought to, you know, at least something to tease out and, and to deliberate, but there's been other cricket on this week, which we're not going to get into too much detail on, but we will note that the Australian women are playing New Zealand women in the Rose Bowl right now. That will, We're going to do that in yep. detail later, but we, well, it's worth noting a couple of points, though. Elise Perry making her first ODI 100. At after, last. After so many, what was it, 24 50s in 40 innings she's made. Oh. She's been 90 not out on three occasions. Finally got there um, in, in spectacular fashion, thanks to a drop on the rope on 97, where she was she was going to be out in the 90s. Oh, she was going <laughs> to fall short again, and then dropped the catch over the road. Where were you watching that? I can, I can just only imagine what, you're, what you would have been doing when the ball was in the I air. Was, I was just bathed in sweat. I was just, <laughs> because cause I've, you know, I've loved... You're invested in this. I've loved the purity of her streak, that it's all 50s. Mm. You know, no, I don't need to make hundreds. It's like Virat Kohli and T20 Internationals. No need to make hundreds. I'll just average 50 by just making 50 every time I bat. <laughs> um, so there's something beautiful about that, but I also really wanted her to, to break that naught in the column and, and finally get to the hundreds. So, yeah, we, we'll talk about that once the series is done. Um, we'll, we'll do a whole one-day international omnibus series, but uh, Josh Butler was the other outrageous talent going around. Yeah, well, 800 runs in that in that third. Well, it would have been the fourth one day because the third one was rained out. Grenada, Josh made 150 in 77 balls. I think he made his last 100 runs in 32 balls, which meant that it was a particularly good day for Kookaburra cricket. Maxwell and Butler batting simultaneously. And look here who we have here, but it's Shannon Gill from Kookaburra. Gilly... Glenn Maxwell, after his performance. <laughs> Glenn Maxwell, after his performance, said... What a coincidence that I, I just happened to be walking past. <laughs> 
Uh, he, Maxwell said it was it was the bat that did it. Um, that it's the best bat he's ever had. It, it's the battler did it. It, 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 it. It's this tatty old thing with tape all over it. It's been had several repairs. But um, you've got you've got a couple of very happy colleagues after he said it's the greatest bat he's ever used. Yeah, well, he said it was the best bat ever, and. I Kookaburra, we have a bat maker. The bat maker identified it as one of the bats that he handmade. So he has handmade this bat for Glenn Maxwell, who keeps coming back and saying, this is the best bat ever. Just give it a bit of a touch-up, give it a bit of a clean-up, and she's right to go again. Because um, obviously our bats last a long time, but this one gets punishing use from Glenn Maxwell. But uh, Lockie Dinger is our bat maker. He came, he's been involved in bat making for a few years. He's only 24 years of age. So he's younger than most of the guys that he's supplying the bats for. I've been saying in the chain rooms that I've got the best bat ever. And it's been held together by tape at the moment. Inside edge has been pretty badly hammered. There was a bit of it coming off, I think, in about the third last over. And they told me just to change it. And I was like, no, I'm not changing this bat. It's the best bat ever. Uh, So, yeah, I was just... Just showing the boys that I meant it when I said it. Lucky Dinger, we met him on our factory tour of Kookaburra last year, Jeff, and he told us with some pride that there's other players in the Australian side who use his bats who aren't Cooker who then put their own stickers on it. Yeah, which they I just, just skin them. They skin them with other. <laughs> so he's well, obviously got some skills. We can't mention any names. No, it wouldn't possibly. Say that, that'll that'll go past legal beforehand. <laughs> but the point of the matter it's just is, just a rumor we've heard. You're getting some fine performances from your players. I, I worked out. Well, not me. It wasn't me that worked out. They're going to play together, Maxwell and Butler for Lancashire. They could be in the same T20 side in the T20 Blast this year. If that happens... For one have, match, is that right? We rec- we, a few people on Twitter, myself included, have calculated there's probably one time the stars could align in July for it to occur. If it happens, we're going to have to just about fly a plane out there for it, aren't we, Gilly? Well, now that you tell me this, <laughs> we're on board. I'll make the decision that we're... <laughs> Team Kookaburra is on board the Butler and Maxwell train on that day, whenever that day is. Yeah. When we bring them together, these Magic Men of World Cricket... Is it Jen Butwell or is it Gloss Maxler? It's funny you say that. We posted something on our Twitter page yesterday, if you had have seen, but uh, we did a split screen and we've created one entity and we went with Maxler. Over Butwell. <laughs> Over Butwell, for obvious reasons. <laughs> but there's a great thing when you in the team Kookaburra offices when you wake up in the morning and overnight... Maxi, you're 113 off 55. Butler, 150 off 77. Can't we mix them up just a little bit more and get the perfect cricketing name? Batwell? Uh, uh, Gloss yes, Batwell. Yes, we can. There yes, we go. We can. Gloss, yeah, Gloss Batwell. I'll, I'll handball that to you. That's yours. So take, okay. the, take that and do what you will in commercial. It's, it's like a... It's fantastic. That it's nominative determinism. It's brilliant that Josh Butler's now finally kind of being recognised as, as a three-format player, and we can only hope that that happens. Freakish that, talent. Yeah, I mean, if, he was, if Josh Butler was Australian right now, he wouldn't be in the test side. He'd be, he'd, be, he'd be asked to go and train smarter, wouldn't he? He won me in the Champions <laughs> Trophy when he nearly killed a cameraman on the gantry right, with, yeah. with a, a, scoop. a scoop over his shoulder <laughs> that just about took out the bloke behind the 96 by lens up on the temporary gantry. The ball went into the river um, that day. You know, my 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 love was was his, but yeah, you're right. He'd he'd sort of be told he was a liability, and but to to have that vision to bring him into the test side, bat him at seven as a specialist batsman, and go, oh well, let's see what he can do. And what do you know? The what first test in, he he won them a test match against Pakistan. We yeah, had eighty he made the second test, but he made fifty. I think he Dan Norcross compiled these stats. It's the volume of time that he's been the top scorer in an England eleven since being picked last summer. 
it, it, it's, it's, an, it's a huge outlier. He just finds a way of consistently performing and being England's most important player. So it, we should be so lucky to see Maxwell in a similar situation one day. Gilly, before we let you go, um, it's the blaze that Maxwell uses, isn't it? And, and you can get on board Team Kookaburra at kookaburra.biz and you can be in the running to win yourself a blaze. I think Jeff's using the blaze at the moment in his pub cricket. Very glad that it's going to good use. But yes, get on board Team Kookaburra. Go to the Kookaburra website. Register and join Team Cooker Rat. You can win prizes every week during this cricket season. Why wouldn't you want to? The Blaze. Thank you, Shannon Gill. Thank you, Cookerbar Cricket. If it ain't Cooker, it ain't Cricket. And Jeff, we have some more thank yous to make before jumping into our feature interview. That's right. Some people who've jumped on the patron page. That means that you can subscribe to the podcast and give us a little bit of financial support and help us keep making the pod. We're up to 56 people who've got on board that, which is ridiculous. Uh, thank you to each and every one of those people. We'd love to get to 100. And if we get to 100, then we'll start doing some bespoke uh, digital creative content. We'll, we'll <laughs> start doing some patron-only stuff to put out there for all those subscribers. But thanks in the last week or so to Chris Kerfoot, to Peter Black, Tamara Paravicini, Ben Rennick, good friend of the show, Vernon Noronha, who I've been having some email correspondence with, and we've got some topics from him that we'll look to get at in future weeks, and Stephen Baxter. All those people have signed up. So you can go to patron.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash the final word and you can choose a level that you'd like to sign up to subscribe if you'd like to do so on a, a per episode basis and help us keep things running but now we should get to our feature guest yeah jeff we, we did talk to earth but i think you buried the lead when you talked about him off the top if you're a new listener to the podcast you would hear the theme music that he kindly has let us use to start our show each week that's right and that's the track stories from the album Smokey's haunt he's one of the most respected Australian musicians going around, I think, the, the things that the label Elephant Tracks has been able to do in terms of representation, and, and he's done collaborations with Paul Kelly. He's one of the great songwriters of our era, so it's a pleasure to have him on the show, and let's get to it. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins coming to you from the Elephant Tracks recording studio in Merrickville, which you can verify by the low-flying aircraft that will pass over various times through this podcast. We're doing an interview we've wanted to do for quite some time. Earthboy is a musician who's been around the Australian consciousness for a good 20 years, founding member of the Oz hip-hop band The Herd, which were very influential from the late 90s on. And it's someone we've been wanting to talk to about cricket and other things in life. So in civilian life, Tim Levinson, uh, welcome to The Final Word. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. There are cricket connections we're going to come to as we go through the podcast, if people are confused about why we're bringing musicians into the show. But just to start off, I thought I'd get you to tell us a little bit about Elephant Tracks just had their 20th anniversary and uh, a whole lot of shows, a big tour across the country with all kinds of things going on and just fill people in a bit on what ET is and, and what 20 years means. Yeah, we are a uh, an independent little label that is based out of you know west of Sydney, and um, you know we've always a lot of the people that have been involved in Elephant Tracks have come together from a, a pretty multicultural perspective, and that has really been a big influence in the type of artists that we've signed and the type of stories that we've tried to tell, ranging from the Herd to Horror Show through to Hermitude, and that real kind of broad cross section of Australian artists, which previously maybe had been gate kept to be more of a 
expression of white Australia, I feel like there's a really exciting bunch of artists and we are part of that telling of those stories. So, yeah, we've been around for 20 years and, you know, we threw a whole bunch of parties last year to, to celebrate that. The thing that made me twig about the fact that you're a cricket nut, so 2007 uh, uh, album called The Signal came out and there was a line in a song where you say, we follow on like Laxman and Dravid. <laughs> and I remember hearing that and going like, like sort of head explode moment because I was a big hip-hop fan, but I was also, that's my favourite test match when VVS Laxman makes 281, Rail Dravid makes 180. After following on, they're playing against Steve Waugh's team in 2001. They make about 600 in the innings, go from a couple of hundred behind to about 350 in front and then bowl Australia out in the last two sessions to win. Extraordinary match. And then it had never occurred to me that anyone in music would like cricket. And suddenly... I was like, wait, wait, that's, that's there. It was a moment of clarity. Uh, that would reflect, or that echoes my experience growing up playing cricket. And cricket of all sports was one of those groups of people that it never crossed over into my interest in music. There was never a bunch of people who were involved in the cricket teams I played in that would also go and go out to gigs and whatnot. And I felt like there was a real big disconnect there. I've grown up and realised that actually, no, a lot of, <laughs> there's so much crossover. There's so many people who are in music that really follow cricket a lot. But yeah, that's definitely my experience. And that test, I don't know if I would say that's my favourite, but I reckon that's one of those games where people can remember where they were. It's one of the, it falls into that exclusive club where, you know, I remember we're at Uni of New South Wales sound checking a gig and just watching them grind the Australians out of the game and also feeling that we were really vulnerable once they did turn the game around. I felt as soon as they had accumulated that many runs, we were done. I didn't think that we would come back from that. It just broke the Australian spirit and I cannot, I will remember that forever i reckon yeah absolutely and it's also the context of how that partnership got put together so australia thrash india in three days in mumbai yeah. make a big score in the first innings at kolkata um, india of course follow on famously and then about 150 if that, they, they got, if that they got, teetering on the brink of being run through and then they bat for what must have been about eight hours together didn't they they started together on day three and finished on day five with that yeah. long day in between you talk about where were you if you weren't yeah. in front of your tv for six hours as <laughs> Australia slowly imploded. Uh, it was a, yeah. a real market, wasn't it? It was so great, but, a, it, but for me it was so miserable because, <laughs> of course, you wanted a contest, but there's that point in tests where you really stop believing there's any chance whatsoever. It's like a lottery of getting a wicket. There mm. just doesn't... You do not have any way of envisaging any scenario where ball can hit bat and fielder can catch ball. Or it just stops... <laughs> it just, it just... All you start thinking about is when will this game end, you know? And, and it seemed like that actually when they got Laxman out on the fifth morning, I remember Ricky Ponting took a catch in the gully and he just looked completely surprised. It was exactly like you said. It came straight to him. He put his hands up in front of his face and he looked at the ball like, huh, huh. There was no celebration. It was just... Oh, it's in my hand. It was exactly that kind of feeling. Did you enjoy earlier on before, perhaps maybe before social media when barriers were broken down somewhat? So Jeff's experience of hearing you talking about cricket and your music. Now we would know you're a cricket fan because you, you follow your Twitter and Facebook and so forth. So in that era when you're writing songs, do you like to drop in the old cricket reference in there? It's almost like a signal to, to people out there that I'm one of you. <laughs> I mean, I think that <laughs> it's you... It's like a secret handshake with the Freemasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to work out what the reward is though. You know, you... you you just leave these little um, breadcrumbs around, you know, a little trail that leads people back to the, the fact that maybe you could bond over a, a game which goes for seven hours in the, you know, the, the piping hot summer. But in terms of being able to be a person 
to people who follow your music where you know before you're a recording artist all that all that they know of you is what comes through on the songs and maybe the odd interview in a magazine but suddenly in the social age around that 2007 mark that's when it flips and suddenly everyone's mm. on facebook and, and twitter starts blowing up and so on you can be an actual human being with your audience is that better or worse yeah the proliferation of social media definitely has led to the escalation of civilization in general, you know. <laughs> We're all so much better for the way we engage online. It's, you know, it's been a really fascinating thing just to see how you are able to transition from a life where you're dealing with face-to-face or phones to now having a second life online. And it's had really profound effect on a lot of the people that I am surrounded by, musicians and whatnot, where you are forced to actually have a participation in that side of the world. And it becomes very connected to your professional goals. So, yeah, I suppose it can be the undoing of a lot of people. And um, a lot of the time, I mean, you do have the choice. I mean, fundamentally, what we're talking about is a choice. And so musicians will always have that choice. But there's an obligation there that follows through. There's an element of coercion almost that if you don't do this, you can't reach an audience. You can't prove that you can reach an audience. Yeah, for sure. And just thinking about when you're putting a post up and you're trying to come up with a caption. Yeah. Well, these things are really small parts of our lives, but there'll be people that compile that data of how much time we spend on trying to come up with something that is going to be appropriately funny or capture our friend's imagination. (laughs) And then when it comes to musicians, this is sort of like a part of our business. And if you think about musicians as small business owners, these things just become the importance that you place in them just becomes magnified. And of course, then you you overthink these things, but that's, that's part of modern life. That's exactly our lives. Jeff and I often describe what we do as running a small business together and yeah social media becomes an imperative and how you can relay your message and appear coherent and, and funny and witty and all the rest of it I mean, yeah. soul traders according to the uh, the ato yeah well, that, that's right soul traders so it does yeah yeah it's right we're not one official business just but, but it if can, the aco are listening it can make yeah. that difference you know it can it, because if you put something out you know there's a couple of things probably for both of us that we've written at times that have been turning points in career terms mm, you know? yeah. and it's just because something happens to hit the right note on the right day on a social media platform and go big instead of going small and, and a million people read it instead of 5,000 people reading it yeah. and suddenly people know you for that. Yeah, and it must be the same in terms of music that you put out, Tim, as far as you must be only natural. You're, you're prouder of some pieces than you are of others, but it doesn't necessarily relate to the traction that they might get in the marketplace. Yeah, it does happen, and I think it probably happens more on the, I thought this was going to go okay, and it's a miserable failure. Um, then it's the other way around where you are surprised by, by the way that something has organically been received. But yeah, mm. you, you do come across that all the time, and I think a lot of it is understanding the way that people engage with information online now that there are reasons why certain things do go viral and they kind of slip into the general current like everything becomes a little bit more connected and I suppose that's why you see political commentators chiming in on sport matters and musicians like myself and our armchair expertise just being expressed at every given chance there is a confusion about how to find your own identity in amongst all that so yeah I suppose we're all just experimenting as it all plays out in front of us too one thing that I notice with people that work in sport especially people who work in sport in isolation is that they'll cop the old stick to sport critique when they talk about politics do you get that kind of 
pushback too, because you're obviously quite a political beast in your own right. Uh, do you find that people say, well, what would you know about the political discourse? You're just a musician. Or talking yeah. about sport. You know, what, or for what, that matter. What yeah, would you yeah, know yeah. about Adam Goods? Yeah, yeah. Pr- precisely. Is that, is that part of your uh, experience online? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think it comes back to having the choice to either engage with it or not, uh, as opposed to I don't have to live with some of those judgments they're just like people deciding whether they want you to be able to engage in a a public conversation i mean it's a funny thing i think it often it's probably one of the more surprising parts of modern life is the enthusiasm people have for fascism (laughs) you know that we're very proudly part of a democracy but actually what would be better is if you just never commented on anything that would be a better (laughs) form of democracy for that person who doesn't agree with your opinion it's a part of modern life that is a flashpoint for both left and right politics you know the way i see the world is that when things get too far down a path of where historically speaking it's been a seems fairly clear we have precedents of like say nazis are bad and generally shouldn't be entertained generally agreed on that for a while it was there was a consensus mostly around it was a 20-year window but (laughs) you would think there's not really a debate to be had but here we are you know arguing the merits of people's perspective oh that wasn't a nazi salute that was a monty python tribute you know that kind of thing (laughs) tell us your relationship with cricket how did that start how did you come to love the game as you do I played the game from when I was about six or seven years old and started off on Saturday mornings and pretty much spent most of my childhood being a pretty average cricketer. I never was, you know, we had rep teams or whatnot, but that was a lot of that was in the Blue Mountains and the Blue Mountains was really well known for not having a single turf wicket. <laughs> so, you just um, got to play on the three sisters, you know. <laughs> and all our rep areas were out in the country, so it was all right. Burke, Dubbo, Bathurst, Orange, and they were all turf wickets. They also a pretty good drive. But uh, I loved cricket and I went through that period of time around that 12, 13 year mark where you do start joining the seniors teams and you start batting at number 10 or 9 and gradually work your way up. And that relationship, I guess, with older, particularly men, because we didn't have, I think there was that same disconnect where you'd have girls playing cricket up until that sort of 12 mark and then it had changed and it had just Mm. become the men's domain. And it was treated like that was completely natural. That was the most normal thing in the world, I think. And during that 13 14 15 mark where a lot of other people were going and starting to party like i I persevered i think that's part of my personality i persevere i just kind of hang in there and so i started really enjoying cricket because i started getting more opportunities and i never really developed professionally in any kind of way but i definitely found myself now doing three nights a week playing cricket and Mm. playing twice a weekend and those you suddenly realize that five nights a week you're completely focused on cricket and yeah my, um, I had this period of time actually in the 90s, like it was sort of early 90s where my old man wasn't around and he didn't really play sports, but my godmother actually was managing the Australian women's cricket team. Okay. So I would go down to Sydney and spend time with her and her partner and they would take me out to North Sydney Oval and watch women's games and I'd go in the scoreboard and have a look around and... She would also take me to Swans games at a period of there's nothing um, before it was cool. There's nothing noteworthy <laughs> about the early '90s with the Sydney Swans history. Busting them in. It was pretty. It was a pretty yeah. bad time. But um, but yeah, she really fostered it too, and she was really into cricket. And she gave me a, another way of seeing cricket. So she would take me into the dressing rooms, and you know, I'd be a bit wide-eyed. And there were a few really pivotal moments in those early '90s when I was a young teenager, where I my perspective changed a little bit. One was getting beaten 6-0, 6-0 when I was on holidays playing a 65-year-old friend of my mum's in tennis. 
me thinking, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a sports kid, you know, I should be able to handle this. And she just demolished me. And also watching these women cricketers up close and just seeing how good they were, mm. obviously not professional, but still seeing that, you know, that transition from young girls stopping playing cricket to uh, a few years later, seeing that actually there's this other story going on. I think it was just the experience feeling like, this is an Australian team and we still have a stigma attached to Australian women's sport when actually this is the, the exact same thing. It's still an Australian... And that thing was very fascinating to me. Just to go back to one of the first things you said about when you were a kid first playing seniors, I think in my own life has that been one of the most important turning points. Yeah. Even now, a guy at my club played his 400th game yesterday, Turbo, he's probably listening. Turbo's bonkers, but I remember watching him give the match report for the second 11 on a Saturday night back at my club, and he was like a hero of mine, and I'm not yeah. exaggerating that, and getting to play with him in the third 11 and the fourth 11 when I would have been 14 or 15 years old. Yeah. These were huge moments in my childhood, which I carry around with me as a, a badge of honour even now. Yeah. Like it, It's that way that you can, it's like you first led into the ground up club you're allowed to be a man for the first time at a very minor level but running in and bowling at adults and uh, sitting in the dressing room before and after play and so forth like for me is that something you can identify with as well yeah I, i think a lot of young cricketers will go through rites of passage where everything is about where your next goal that you're trying to get you know next century higher average all those kinds of things but when you look back sometimes you appreciate that uh, some of the fondest memories you'll have playing cricket and being a cricket lover will, will actually be moments that weren't accompanied by fanfare and trophies and all mm. that kind of thing. I still remember one of the first times I went from being a junior cricketer playing in a seniors team. and I still remember the ground. It was in Blackheath. And we were playing a team and I think we were about 20 runs short of the victory. We were nine wickets down and I come in at 10 and another person my age came in at 11 and that's how we found our spot in that side and we just kind of blocked and hit singles around and we won the game brilliant and it's a really tiny insignificant moment but it's also a huge moment in you feel like you've really accomplished something which is a bit of a big deal when you're 12 or 13 years old and there's still a smile on your face when you mention it that (laughs) that shows that you still have a really good like your brain's just done a little serotonin dump just remembering like wow you know this is amazing and I still uh, you know I came down to Sydney and I played grade cricket not at a high level but prior to that, when I was about 17 or 18, we had been playing seniors for a fair few years and myself and a friend of mine got together with a bunch of other junior cricketers and created a team out of, there was a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old and we were about 17, 18. Um, the majority of us were under 18 years old and we had probably three or four, uh, you know, mid-30s, you know, adults. And that season was... You know, it wasn't supposed to be anything. We were too young. There were a lot of kids in the in the group, and really, we're playing seniors in the Blue Mountains. We're not talking, we're talking park cricket. Mm. But um, we went through that whole season undefeated, and there was this camaraderie and this sense of achievement that brought together all these really young kids playing in an adult league. That that's by far my most cherished year of cricket, mm. and that's just park cricket. That does not rely on playing against someone who's played shield and someone who's got this rep, you know reputation for this that and the other that is just the season that i will always look back to as the most enjoyable season we lost the grand final it was the only game we lost so you won every game and lost the grand yeah final. yeah but um but God. the actual the the, the sense of taking bonding, me back to under 14s i had exactly the same thing happen to me i still think about it two or three times a year yeah, why do we think about these things that are just a, they're no they're, they're probably some like little inscribed list in an rsl club somewhere you know but it's something that you'll always remember it's tattooed on your soul yeah. <laughs> forever if you think about 
the cricket field and the types of people that will spend six or seven hours on a Saturday afternoon. There's always players that kind of hang in your memory. I still remember at Petersham, I used to play grade, and there was a, a scorer called Dickie. And, you know, he had these mannerisms where he'd be like, piss off flies, and he'd always be shooing flies away, and it became <laughs> this thing that I later met my friend here who was in the herd, and he had played somewhere in that club at some point. And we bonded because we both knew this scorer. And the scorer was, was you know, in no shape to play cricket, but he was a fixture of the club yeah. and he was a real character. It's interesting. You talk about the camaraderie of that season and how that's it's such a beautiful thing. There's also this contrast, I guess, with all organised sport, that there's some really ugly sides of masculine macho culture that come through in sport. We've seen it with the rape trial around cricketers in England mm. for instance there are some really poisonous sides to the way those cultures work when you get these almost all male environments and these incredibly testosterone heavy environments and the way that people need to prove themselves and you know some of that seemed to be reflected in the Australian men's team as well through the, the sandpaper debacle and, and all of that for me it's a real contradiction I don't know how to reconcile those two things that I there are sports that I love and there's also this side to them that I think is really destructive for sure the cricket that I grew up with was very white and like I said going out into the country areas to play it'd be a real in a minor way clash of cultures but at the same time it's very reflective of my upbringing in the blue mountains which was also very white but yeah white males you'd go through all those periods of time where young people are trying to assert their identity mm. and their their masculinity and i recall one time playing cricket and myself there was two other players from the blue mountains who were selected into this western districts representative team and we toured new zealand playing this otago kind of 11 and we went away on this trip and my friend my my closest friend was samoan he's the closest that we ever really got to a different skin color on the field and over the course of that trip there was a, a level of camaraderie where there was kind of a an acceptance of the type of behavior that you have when you're on tour and a lot of it was an under 21 or under 19s group as that trip went on there was racist jokes being made and it was so blatant that it took my friend protesting some of the behavior for anyone to even acknowledge it and that wasn't dealt with at the time because it wasn't even thought of as a point of controversy it was almost like a sign of bringing the group into disrepute to even complain about that racism and my friend's not he doesn't shy away so he got into an altercation with the captain at one point and captain's a big unit like a big country unit you know he's and my friend was a fair bit smaller but he was he wasn't kind of backing down and at the end of that trip rather than anyone genuinely trying to deal with the circumstances that my friend found himself in actually he was put on report for bringing the you know disharmony into the group and we, it can't, there was this big sort of breakdown as we got home to address the fact that we had disrupted the group and how and dare you make us feel bad for the things that we've done you know? i mean i was i grew up in public enemy i was like i was really committed to an anti-racist bond but at the same time i was still a white kid i didn't see all these things they didn't impact me directly so i yep. was only dealing with this next to my friend um, so, yeah, I mean, those types of behaviour has always been really common in all the cricket that I've played. There's no doubt that manifestation of it at the, the elite level, it's no surprise to me because I've been in dressing rooms and on fields and that kind of hostility that comes out when people get frustrated on the field and the type of sledging, all that stuff, That's this is of no surprise. 
Oh, and it's still obviously part of it too now. I mean, we can be happy with the progress that we've made as a, as a community, as a cricket community, and they're worthwhile mentioning. But even just, again, reflecting on my own cricket, a couple of years ago where I was playing, there was an episode where an Indian fellow came to our club and he left within half a season due to the fact that he felt so unwelcome. And I don't yeah. think the two things were unrelated. I know some of the criticism he copped was very stereotypical and it wasn't on, and it's just such an unfortunate part but sort of the go satellite cricket is a white sport i mean fundamentally it's a colonial sport it's a sport that is british empire yeah. oriented and so forth and yet it is a lovely thing that it's inclusive to the extent that we've grown the sport and growing it amongst now women and, and people from other parts of the world that aren't necessarily from the white australia origins of but that's very recent as well yeah i wrote about this in the wisdom almanac even just looking at the names of australian test cricketers you've got to get up to the 80s or 90s before you even get a couple of eastern european names in there sure you know, let alone anyone like Usman Khawaja or Indigenous player, you know, Jason Gillespie being the first Indigenous man to play Test cricket for Australia, and that was the late 90s by the time he came into the team. Yeah, one thing that has been a lesson for me in music is when you see yourself up on stage, there's nothing unusual about it. It just is part of the realm of possibilities to see yourself playing that role because that person sort of looks like you. And I've always had the mentality that, hey, you know, there's no rules why any particular person can't succeed and go on and do the things that they want to do. And in music, I remember years ago talking to kids, whether they be from disadvantaged backgrounds or remote communities or parts of different parts of Sydney, and they would be talking about their heroes Snoop Dogg and American rappers. And I remember this was particularly at a period where we were really kind of starting to own our own space and actually build a little bit of an industry in Australian music for hip-hop and having these conversations with these kids and going, hey, hang on a sec, but what about the local heroes that you got? You can actually have a closer connection to this becoming a possible career choice for you. And it came back down to the fact that these kids were not seeing themselves on stage. They were not seeing artists that were black. They weren't seeing artists that had brown skin. It was a lot of white skin that they were seeing. So they didn't even think of themselves as having a chance to play on stage. And I think in cricket, we can't understate that importance of actually seeing yourself out in the middle and going, okay, this is a thing where I'm connected to another person in my community. I can see myself doing that. And kids grow up with that being unspoken. I mean, in rugby league, you know, Polynesian kids can see themselves running out there on the field. Aboriginal kids can see themselves out there on the field. And I, I don't think cricketers had any kind of grasp on that. It's almost never had that. And Kawaja wrote about exactly that, saying that it didn't occur to him to support Australia when he was a kid because none of them looked anything like him or his friends. And yeah. so why would you, in a way? Why would, you, why would it even cross your mind? Which is such a strange concept for all of us, mm. or all the, I guess, people that make up the majority of crickets enthusiasts and participants is that you don't really think about that because yeah. it's not the experience that you've lived and i think there's a little bit of a gap where you try and start to appreciate why someone could say oh why wouldn't i follow australia <laughs> it's something that you very proactively tried to change with elephant tracks where the roster of artists you guys have signed up over the years um, a lot of artists whose backgrounds are asian or, or indigenous australian or african it's a conscious effort to say there's a whole range of music out there and we want to be able to give opportunities to, to people to show us what they've got yeah well i think i'd identified that we were part of the gatekeeping problem yep. and 
that you have to really proactively change your processes to get access to people that you otherwise wouldn't. So I don't really know how much conscious work I did in that rather than just being a little bit more hardline about not signing artists who were similar to artists that we'd previously signed. An Elephant Track started off, the origin of it is very multicultural, so it never felt like we were completely changing what we were doing, but it, yeah, it became something where we were consciously not signing artists that were white males <laughs> with a view to trying to go well we're part of this overall picture and there's so much more to it than what the rest of the industry is looking at i look at it in footy right there's a real investment in trying to make that cultural jump to not only be working with people that perhaps wouldn't have had a pathway to that professional part of the sport or is that you know you're able to actually create a safe environment for them when they do actually get to the club and they can be part of something that can last for 10 years rather than just be a few years and then you know you burn out because there's too many cultural differences and there's no effort and it's not just about giving them pads and a bat it's actually about trying to come together as a community and give and take so i think that you can actually go well that one player is going to become a stepping stone for other players to come through and who, where are you going to be in 20 years providing a pathway to different parts of the community to participate and then then it becomes you know what i feel like with where music's going in australia where you have a lot more artists coming from different parts of the community it starts becoming more reflective of the overall mentality of the country not just like a kind of channel nine all the participants on um i'm a celebrity get me out of here all white or like Mm. you know the bachelor or whatever they're all the same kind of people we do that so effortlessly I did an interview with Darcy Short. He was saying what he would love to see in the future is to have it be a non-event when Indigenous players are playing for Australia. He said, you know, it would still be important, but it wouldn't be like, oh, you're the third Indigenous player, you know, mm. you're the fifth. It would just be part of the normal run of things that that's how it is, that there are Aboriginal players in the Australian cricket team because there have been so few uh, in, in representative cricket over the years. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, the idea of having a an Indigenous round in the BBL, or it's a thought that I guess no one would have even put too much time into because it's not cricket so far behind in that kind of respect but yeah and, and dan christian's been one who's pushed that but he's found it difficult to get much traction because um, precisely that reason it it almost just highlights the fact that there are so few players from that background as opposed to in the, the nrl or the afl when there are so many indigenous players in those leagues that it's a real celebration and everybody can feel part of it and footy did a great job with that when you consider that through the 80s, especially in the 90s, there was some pretty intense racism. On another podcast, we're interviewing Martin Flanagan about his experience watching football at the MCG in the 80s, specifically watching the Cracker Brothers and, and what they were subjected to and how far we've gone from there to where we are now, notwithstanding um, the Adam Goods debacle that prematurely ended his career. But as a football community, I think we now, I think we have a, a far more mature relationship with our Indigenous players. I, mean, yeah. Yeah, I hope that cricket has a similar career arc if you like it with, with the way that we embrace aboriginal players going forward it feels like we're further down the path as far as the maturity of, of the nation and that it's not a novelty but it doesn't mean that the story ends there it just means that there's a an ability for that conversation going forward to just take on a few more perspectives and yeah. be expressed in a different way and 
you know, whether it be allowing for a, an articulate player like Adam Goods to come out and talk on social issues and talk about the general experience beyond just kicking goals and, and winning Brownlows, it, it's that. And it's also just that expression of excellence that I'm here, I'm so great, and therefore, by virtue of being so great, sending a, a message to all those people in Australia about the potential and the ingenuity, the the talent, the the depth of of someone like Buddy Franklin, who's not an outspoken player, but can allow Australians to get an insight into the genius of that athleticism. And that genius of athleticism is an amazing thing to me because it's like instrumental music that doesn't need words. It's just by virtue of the compositions and the artistry and the, the arrangements and the players and how great they are. You can actually get a whole expression of that brilliance. It doesn't need words, and I think you know that these are parallels that I find with sport and music all the time. It's a thing I think about a lot as well. That art and sport, to me, are basically the same thing. There's a desire as a human being to express yourself in some fashion, and if you're a ballerina, you're an athlete. If you're an athlete, you're creating patterns, you're creating shapes, you're honing your body to make it as the best possible instrument it can be to express yourself in the medium that you've chosen and if that medium is hitting a ball over long on then you know that's as valid as as a medium that's painting I think they're the same thing and there's an urge for stories and narrative and you find stories in sport that's why people get fascinated with sport they follow those stories of teams and players and and all of it's coming from the same place so this sort of idea that you're either into art or you're into sport is one that's fundamentally fallacious to me there's a lot of crossover I watch athletes at their peak where they are just there's a symmetry and there's a everything is just working perfectly it's just humming this engine is just humming that's poetry to me you know there's this poetry about the way that a you can have a stoppage and a ball can be handballed to another player to another player and this passage of play that just feels like it's actually it defies being limited to just some bunch of accidents on the field there's this poetry about it it's just smooth and I find so many parallels between that and those really amazing moments as a musician where for whatever has caused the chemistry between the music and the words and the singing and the performance and the way that those elements come together to create a beautiful song. I mean, these things are the same to me. There's a problem solving with music. You know, music sometimes, you know, reduced down to inspiration. And actually, no, what, what happens with music is you just have a set of problems and you've just got to solve them. And sometimes you can solve them and the end outcome is just a song that, that is buried, doesn't go anywhere. Other times... And I, I'm, I've done this enough now to know that it's not always in the power of the, the person who's doing it. For whatever reason, you've, you've, th- those elements come together and it's a great song. It's a song that resonates and it means something to you. And I mean, you see that on the sporting field all the time. Just yeah, th- There's a difference between grinding out a win and just something spectacular happening. And those things are the things that you buy into it for. And I sometimes think about that watching great athletes play. It's just like, oh, wow, you know, I, I was alive at the time when they were at the top of their <laughs> trade. Like, how lucky, because that's the story that you tell your kids. Because, yeah, you can watch it on TV, but that's a privilege. And um, when you really love a sport, you appreciate those finer details. It just makes the romance all the more potent. One of the stories you did want to tell was about Philip Hughes, the cricketer who was killed playing in 2014. You wrote a tribute song, I guess, for him that came out a year after his death. It was called Nambucca Boy. It was on the album that you put out around about that time as well. 
Tell us a bit about how did it come about that you decided that you wanted to write this piece? I'm pretty wary about the crossover between sport and music and trying to force sport into music. It's like when you go to a sporting event, sometimes mentally you're there to really take in that contest. You're not wanting to see a band play at halftime. They can be really incongruent. And I say that being a passionate musician and a big sports lover. That can be a a strange meeting place. And I know that there's a great catalogue of music that has truly captured sport. And you think of names like Paul Kelly, of course. He's got his famous songs. But yeah, I'm really wary about it. I would not have sat down and chosen to write a song like this. It's not a thing where I thought, oh, that's that's right for the picking. I think it was just... One of those times where I so often get therapy out of my processes with music and you do tend to make sense of them piece by piece as you're trying to put them into words. And I have a bit of a privilege because there's sometimes a compelling need to create music and I'm able to even take the time to put those into words. You know, a lot of the time it just becomes pub banter or chatting through this stuff or maybe it's bigger for people and they see therapists or whatnot. But for me, it... I was driving past the um, SCG the night they had lit the ground and a bunch of the ex-players came together and it was the same week that he'd been hit by the bouncer and they had, the, the family had come together and, and he had passed away and all these cricketers came together and I only knew that because a mate of mine who works at the Swan said that this was happening, that they're all going to come together and just mourn Philip Hughes and I drove past from a gig that night and I saw the lights on and it just profoundly impacted me. I just thought about it and 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 the strangeness of phil hughes's death which had such an impact on so many people in australia and 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 around the world he impacted me the same i felt like it was too quick the whole thing just happened too quickly and it was hard to compute and i drove home i was on my way home and i thought well i'm just going to go to the studio and just try and put something into words and i'd hadn't thought about it as a song i just thought it was a therapy i just wanted to try and put this into words because you know why am i driving along on a city evening feeling these conflicting emotions and i just went back and did a more like a spoken word just free-flowing whatever came out and it wasn't till about six months or a year later that i thought i wonder about putting that to music and even when i did that i didn't think about putting it on an album and it never ended up on an album it just ended up as a kind of a a song that went with the album and and even right on the point where we put the record out i remember the night before the record came out because it came out as a bonus song i thought oh i don't even know if i feel comfortable about that have i done the wrong thing i had a real crisis of like of a panic moment thinking that this was a song that felt like my it was the summation of my lifetime of following cricket and the grief of trying to come to terms with the death of a person I'd never met. And then I thought, why am I putting it on a record? This shouldn't be in a commercial space. I didn't know what to do about it. I felt like I was I had just made this massive misstep that maybe didn't do justice to the, the family and no one commented on it. So no one sort of said, oh, why did you do this? I suppose it was more about me trying to come to terms with my own version of events and my own way of processing Phil Hughes's passing. And looking back, I don't think I did the wrong thing. I just think that because that was such a complicated event for a lot of cricket lovers and people in general, that that was my form of anxiety and trying to understand what was the right thing to do with it. There seemed to be a lot of people who responded to it in a really positive way, saying that it had helped them process their feelings about it as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, like in the song, it talks about blokes crying at traffic lights in their cars as the news came through. And I see that when I've performed it live, you know, people brought to tears and there's a, a way of people who wouldn't otherwise ordinarily be in touch with their feelings just breaking a little bit because there's just a gap there where you generally, you're not exposed i guess that's the word i'm looking for is you're not exposed too often and you generally have your ways of dealing with life that protect yourself and especially blokes you know blokes who are told not to be too in touch with their emotions this one was one of those moments that exposed a lot of people and caught them by surprise and people had to deal with the preciousness of life at a time where they were not expecting to think about it and so yeah you know that was something that i i see quite a bit i see like young kids at gigs just becoming emotional about that song because this is a moment where they're okay to it's almost they're allowed to do it especially maybe they've had a couple of beers people are like oh this is an okay time for me to deal with you know the frailty of life sometimes i think we should have a listen to it so that people can know what it is that we're talking about and then we'll talk a little bit more is Nambucca Boy. And all of those thousand thoughts that could be in the back of your mind, looking out the dressing room door, am I good enough to don these whites? It's the SCJ, but the nerves are bilingual. Often settled by a single, just hit the damn ball, yet the game is that simple. Jitter for fear of a cheap dismissal. On the walls hung the accolades The names that have been engraved The Bradbans, the Benos, the giants of the game They rose up like a fig tree out of Saturdays The kid was seeing them like basketballs The summer that he'd be recalled Feet moving and a better balance on the shorter ball Scoring free, barely getting caught at all He was brought up Nambucca Riverway Town of Maxfield Young kid begins to play The way he wields the willow outside off No matter what was thrown at him Well it'll bounce right off Runs came in fifties and tons Ever since he was young Save your legs, fill it's four more runs Baggy cap was not a match for the Australian sun Next to nose has got burnt For the emblem on the front And a write up in a local paper But this time not up in the back of the sports pages A local lad had cracked the shield side Couple years after the ashes of 05 Raised his bat that much that he got his baggy green Flying across the Indian Ocean with the Australian team Number one ranked opposition Dale staying at the peak of his powers Debooing against him in a nerve-wracking hour And he failed at first caught by the keeper But it was the second innings of the match that he featured Second test of the series, a century in both innings The youngest to do it at 20, no longer a secret and it had all gone to plan, but his destiny was never that simple. Cause simple is rare, a temporary member in and out of the text. But soon enough, a permanent threat, but there, they're in the middle that November night. Let the groundsman turn on the lights, the radio reports saying that the batsman died. So let the groundsman turn on the lights and all of these thousand thoughts that would be in the back of their minds. Walking out the dressing room door We solemnly side by side So let the groundsman turn on the lights The grown men crying at traffic lights And everywhere there were bats outside So let the groundsman turn on the lights Bye
fate who you don't know, who you've got nothing to do with aside from knowing of them can make you have such a, an intense emotional response. Yeah, it was just a multi-layered deep sadness that I didn't know Philip Hughes but I just grieved over this bloke for so long. I feel as though when, when your song came out a year later, Tim, like that was the catalyst for a whole bunch of us to go through that process once more because it, like, it was the year anniversary, wasn't it? Memory serves me correctly yeah. when, the, when the song was released and Jeff, remember you and I listening to it once and it, yeah, I think it's because we've all played cricket and we all know how easy it is to be hit by a cricket ball. That's one part of it. Mm. The other part of it is this the human being in question who seems such a happy person, cut down at the prime of his life at age 25. It's just criminal to think that someone that young could suffer that affliction. Um, there was the kind of, you shouldn't talk of it this way, but the cricket element, we didn't get to see the full expression of what he could be. Mm. Um, we all knew what he was going to be or we all assumed what he would go to be and be a champion of the game. It, it had so many different elements to it. And I think you put it best before, we were just so shocked by it. It was uh, such profound sadness that which prevails to this day. It's true that the narrative of a professional cricketer's life generally has a few hiccups and 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 so many of them mirror the road bumps that have affected players of a previous generation and you see them they come out and Phil Hughes was one of those players that immediately had an impact mm. and then was found out a little bit that's not uncommon this is part of the growth and how how you mature as a cricketer and quite often we will watch and see whether that player is able to overcome the, that adversity and be able to go on with it. And, you know, he seemed like one of those players that was destined to overcome yeah. and have a great career. So that narrative that we are so accustomed to, these players that have had the fortune of having time to overcome those adversities and become great cricketers and become better cricketers as a result of them. That was what was supposed to happen. And I think having that disrupted, I think that was one of the things that caught so many people by surprise because we're so used to those news stories. And I've often wondered in the aftermath, and I think you and I have both now written about this, Jeff, that the effect of the players who did know him intimately, indeed those who shared the field with him, and what an impact that would have on, on someone's life. Like I can't even conceive if a dear friend of mine died in front of my eyes. Like They all went through this with a teammate in their place of work. I mean, it's yeah. also an industrial accident. I pondered recently whether we perhaps didn't give them as much space as they required. They were back out on the field two weeks later and, and yeah. you know, playing in a World Cup three months later. And There must be still to this day parts of that which go unprocessed for these guys that have to make a quid doing essentially what, the, what their friend did when he died. Yeah, I mean, remember the kind of outcry about bounces and regulating the game a bit more and gradually those things become they don't attract the clicks because when we encounter a problem in general society you're looking for a quick fix but even at the time most cricketers are on one side hoping that you never see or hear of another event like this but at the other realizing that how do you change the game when mm. that is part of it i mean like you said it before adam that was a great point we've all been hit by a ball i remember one time on a wet synthetic wicket growing up in as a teenager, having a helmet but not the face guard. Yeah. 
and getting hit by a bouncer and it was just that it skidded off this um, synthetic surface and it knocked out a couple of teeth in my and I still got like scars on my tongue from from being hit by balls oh, and all wow. but we I guess like a lot of people trying to process the fact that this is just part of the game and a lot of players have been hit by cricket balls in the same way since the other part of it that stood out to me was the nature of public grief and how erratic how strange it can be that you know the, the things that do grab the public attention and then you'll have other people pushing back and saying why are you all mourning for this person when other people have died on the same day or mm. you hear it with disasters or terrorist attacks or so on some get more attention than others and the criticisms are legitimate there often is a racial component or a cultural disconnect or whatever it might be but there's also the fact that humans can't grieve for everybody you don't mm. have the emotional capacity to have a response to everything you, you sort of have to be able to not respond to some things and i guess the reasons why we do or don't respond to various things are definitely open for criticism but the fact is that you can't possibly process all of that at once and it, it's almost a, a lottery sometimes as to which things will get through and why an event like this broke through to so many people so powerfully I mean, it's totally disproportionate, right? And it is unfair. And why we uh, prescribe importance to some people's lives and not others. I mean, this is an opportunity to really kind of self-reflect about why we do that in general. And yeah, you're right. Those people are right to say that this is a disproportionate response to something. Why is there an imbalance there? That's a very fair observation and criticism of that general response. But that doesn't take away from the fact that sometimes, you know, you can't, be guilty for feeling the way things impact you because that is the nature of life. What I think is another response rather than feeling guilty about that is actually, yeah, reflecting on, yeah, why is it? Why is it that you're not impacted by somebody else dying in a very tragic circumstances? But I feel like those are opportunities just to learn about life <laughs> and, and <laughs> in, in a sad way. You know? It's something that you wrestled with at the time, whether you should put it out. I remember you contacted me at the time and we didn't know each other particularly well, but you were basically saying, well, I've written this thing and, and I don't know if I should have yeah. and I don't know what I should do with it or should I do nothing with it or should I do something with it? And you were searching out in various directions trying to get some feedback to tell you what to do in this situation yeah. when ultimately it was really just an expression of what you felt at the time which is legitimate if that's what you're feeling and i think yeah. most people who heard it, it it's such a tender piece of music as well like you, in theory you could get frustrated by the commercial element that you said before someone could make that criticism until mm. they hear the song and know what you were attempting to do i think that might have a, a link to why you didn't receive any backlash at the time yeah i, I and for my involvement in music and, and watching other musicians and the way that they contribute to our general understanding of life this is our job you know we we got to sometimes try and find words or, or try and find a, a mood that can make sense of something that perhaps is it defies the logical understanding there's no logical understanding to be found but there is an understanding there is something there is a way of translating why this is feels the way it does and and us as musicians we that's our stock and trade is you're trying to not even make sense but just expand on what's going on and we're all imperfect i may come from a completely amateur cricket background but the honest way that i engage with that event is the only thing that i can offer you know i can't really offer anything mm. beyond that tim it's been Wonderful talking to you at length across such a range of subjects. If you're listening in, jump online and look up music from Earthboy or look up Elephant Tracks. There's a whole range of artists on that roster for you to get involved with. And thanks for having a chat to us today on The Final Word. Thanks very much. It was good fun.
this is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins and thanks to Earthboy for taking an hour of his time to have such a, a long and in-depth conversation with us. Yeah, I love that chat. When we were in the room doing it, it was uh, the morning after a one-day international. We'd been up quite late the night before working, but we could have easily sat there for three or four hours chewing his ear off. Oh, what a beautiful bloke and I'm just so thrilled that we can add him to the list of people we've interviewed on the show over the last 12 to 18 months. We, we've been very fortunate that people have been so open with us and you know, can't wait to do many more of these in well we've got a couple coming up with Ian Chapel and, and Will Anderson down the pipeline which are coming soon and a bunch of others throughout the course of 2019. And great to see behind the curtain into the Elephant Tracks headquarters this giant warehouse full of these sort of like fake Greco-Roman <laughs> columns and um, all, all kinds of bizarre furniture all these things piled up from various theatre shows over the years and there's a, there's a whole strange world out there in Marrickville in the warehouse district of Sydney. So if you've enjoyed the interview today and you've enjoyed the show, uh, as ever, we encourage you to please just jump on iTunes and, and drop a quick review or a rating in there. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it helps quite a lot in terms of spreading the show to the people. And as Jeff mentioned off the top, there's the Patreon account now if you are willing to provide us a little bit of financial support as well and keep the world turning around. That is on patreon.com slash the final word. Uh, look it up or look us up on Twitter. Send us an email, finalwordcricket at gmail.com if you have any suggestions for things we should cover. And for now, let's hear from Earthboy one more time with stories as the outro. This has been The Final Word. I had to go about it